All right, well, if you would, go ahead and uh, take out your Bibles with me. Let's open them up. We're going to be in the, in the New Testament today. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, next week, we will return to our verse-by-verse studies in the book of Genesis and all that's happening with Isaac and Jacob and Esau and um, Rebecca. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to all of that. But this morning, uh, we're going to be looking in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, our focus this morning is going to be verses 13 through 15. Uh, I encourage you to, uh, to keep your Bible open and uh, to have it where you can uh, look at it uh, as we go through this time of preaching together. Uh, let's begin reading 2 Corinthians 5, verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. see that our message this morning comes from a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Let me tell you something about that man, Paul. He's not right. He's narrow-minded. He's fanatical. He acts as if he's got the market on God's truth and what anyone else thinks doesn't matter. This man Paul acts like he's some sort of super apostle. To be honest, I think he's unbalanced. These are the kinds of things that were being said about the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Do you see in verse 13, Paul says, For if we are beside ourselves, do you see that? If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. That Greek verb translated beside ourselves literally refers to someone who is outside of himself. It's what we mean when we say that someone is out of their mind. They are out of their mind. The root of this word is the same as the word used in Mark 3. When Jesus' own family begins to think that he's crazy and tries to approach him and seize him because he's walking around claiming to forgive sins and to be the Son of God. Mark says they were saying of Jesus, he is out of his mind. Well, that's exactly what was being said of Paul to the church in Corinth. And in fact, this kind of talk happens anytime someone begins to become dogmatic about God's truth. Anytime someone is passionate about what God has revealed, anytime someone is willing to speak in no uncertain terms, that person better be ready to be labeled as crazy or out of his mind. John the Baptist is an example. He did not shy away from confrontation with the Pharisees. He bluntly told the Pharisees that they were wrong, bluntly declared that they needed to repent. How did they respond to him? They said he had a demon. They said he was possessed by a demon. In our own day, in our own culture, people who claim to know truth 
about the most important things in the world are laughed at. People who are willing to stand on God's Word and tell people that they are wrong when they are wrong are considered offensive, intolerant, unloving. Indeed, zeal for truth in our culture is seen as a mark of someone who is unhinged. Yet Paul responds by saying to the Corinthians, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. In other words, if, if we have gone too far, if we have been too zealous for the truth, if, if we have been too passionate in what we've said and what we've done, it's because of God. Our hearts are ablaze with love for God. This is why we're so passionate. This is why we're so unyielding and so insistent about what we say. He goes on to say, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. In other words, it doesn't seem to matter much to Paul whether the world thinks he's crazy or not. But it does matter to him that the Corinthians understand his motivation in all that he does. It is his love for God. And it is his love for them that has been behind all that he has said and done. Paul has given his life to the service of God. God has placed a calling upon Paul's life to win souls for Christ among the Gentiles. Let the world think what it wants to think. Paul is sold out to his mission. How sold out was Paul to his mission and to the God who gave him that mission? Well, just turn over a few pages to 2 Corinthians 11. And let's be reminded. 2 Corinthians 11 Let's see for ourselves some of what Paul endured as he sought to serve God and preach the gospel. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 24. Verse 24, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once, I was stoned. If you remember that story, he was stoned till they thought he was dead and they left him for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Here was the life of the Apostle Paul. How easy it would have been for this man to have settled down as a pastor in one of these early churches. These people would have taken care of him. He, he could have lived a, a quiet, peaceful life ministering to one church body, but that was not God's calling on his life. Paul's life was a life of suffering, a life of sacrifice. 
as he sought to take the gospel to places where the name of Jesus had not yet been heard. What was the driving force of Paul's life? Where did he get his strength to persevere in this kind of life? What got him out of bed in the morning, in city after city, knowing that each day he could be driven out of another city again? What moved him? What controlled him? It was the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Go back to 2 Corinthians 5. Look at verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Here is the secret to where Paul found his passion and his strength, his zeal and his endurance. He found what he needed in the love of Christ. The love of Christ controlled him and his partners in ministry. That word controlled or compelled speaks of a kind of pressure that produces action. What was it that Paul was feeling? What pressure laid upon his soul, upon his conscience that compelled him each day to live so radically? He was living in the love of Christ. He was living in the knowledge of what Jesus had done for him. He was living in the knowledge of Christ's great love for him. Robert Murray McShane said this, As the natural sun in the heavens exercises a mighty and unceasing attractive energy on the planets which circle around it, So did the Son of Righteousness, Jesus, which had arisen in Paul with a brightness above that of noonday, exercise on his mind a continual and almighty energy that constrained him to live henceforth no more to himself, but to him who for him had died and rose again. And observe that this was no temporary, fitful energy which it exerted over his heart and life. No, this was an abiding and continued attraction. For he does not say that the love of Christ did once control him, or that the love of Christ does now shall yet control him, or that in times of excitement or in seasons of prayer, In peculiar devotion, the love of Christ would be prone to control him. No, he says simply, the love of Christ controls us. It is the ever-present, ever-abiding, ever-moving power which forms the mainspring of all Paul's working so that if you were to take this away, all his energies would be gone and Paul would become as weak as other men. Here is the secret not only of Paul, but of every Christian who has ever lived faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ. Living in the love of Jesus gives us what we need to be obedient even in the hardest of circumstances. Remembering who Christ is, what He's done for us in the past, what He's doing for us this very minute, what He is going to do for us in the future. 
Remembering that gives us what we need to keep trucking down this straight and narrow path. Most important of all, looking to Jesus Himself and knowing who He is and who we are compared to Him and realizing the greatness of His mercy for us, the greatness of His love for us, this compels our hearts to live faithfully. We love Christ because He first loved us. It is by basking in His love for us that our heart abounds back in love to Him and that love shows itself in faithful living. If you're not living in the reality of Christ's love for you, you will have little love for Christ and there will be little obedience and little faithfulness in your life. Does that make sense, church? Does that make sense? Homecoming each year, whether it's me or a guest speaker, we... We try and have a moment where our church is reminded about something vital. This is a Sunday in which we as a church are encouraged to hold on to something that is foundational, something that is central, something that is essential to us being a faithful church. This morning, I want to urge us to be controlled by the love of Christ. I want to press upon us the utter importance of living in the light of what our Savior has done for us. If we lose this, we will have lost everything. We will have, well, our energies will wane. Our passion will die out. If we lose sight of Christ's awesome love for us, we will become complacent and we will fall into patterns of arrogance, patterns of pride, patterns of selfishness. There is only one thing that will keep us as a church following Christ and living obediently to Christ, and that is living in the reality of the love of Christ. What is controlling you this morning? When you open your mouth to say something or allow thoughts to run through your mind, when you do this or you do that, what is the overlying thing that is controlling your life? Paul speaks here of two controlling masters. There is the master of self and there is the master of God. We can live each day out of love for self. Or we can live each day out of love for God. We can live to serve self. We can live as a slave to the desires of self. Or we can live to serve God. And we can be controlled by all that His will has for us. What is controlling your life? Is self your master? Is self the love of your heart? Or is God your master? And is God the love of your heart? See, Paul's thinking about the cross in this passage. And he's thinking about the reason that Jesus came and died. I would ask you, why why did Jesus come and die? And there are so many good answers to that question. Why did Jesus come and die? But, But here, Paul points us to one very important reason that Jesus died. Jesus died so that all of His people would die to the service of self. 
Jesus did not die on the cross to give eternal, abundant life to people still in love with themselves. Jesus did not die to forgive the sins of people who would go on forever living with themselves as their own gods. No, Jesus went to the cross. He bore the agony of the wrath of God so that something mighty would happen in the hearts of His people. Namely, that self-love would be destroyed. And that love for God would take over instead. Thinking about the cross, Paul says in verses 14 and 15, look there with me, verses 14 and 15, thinking about the cross, Paul says, for we have concluded this, that one, that's Jesus, has died for all. Therefore, all have died. So he's talking about all Christians because all Christians have died with Christ. One has died for all. Therefore, all have died. How have we died? And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus died as the federal head of His people, as as their representative. And when He died, it guaranteed that a kind of death would happen in every one of His followers. Namely, they would die to self. They would no longer live for themselves, but they would live for Christ. Christ would become the controlling influence of their lives. Christ would become their portion. Christ would become their treasure. Christ would become their obsession. Jesus died so that the glory of self would fall into the dust compared to the glory of God that we have come to see in Jesus. Do you remember how you used to think about yourself before you were saved? Maybe there's some of you here this morning and and you're not a follower of Jesus. And you still have very high thoughts of yourself. You are still very much in love with yourself. Isaiah 53.6 says that this is the mark of sinful humanity. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. In other words, every sheep has chosen to become his own shepherd. Every person has chosen to become his own master, his own God. I will do what I want to do, thank you very much. I'll turn to Jesus when I need him. The problem with people is not that they don't have enough self-esteem. The problem with people is we esteem ourselves way too highly. Rather than accepting our place as creatures created by God to find our purpose and joy in His service, in His worship, in honoring Him, we want it to all be about me. We want to set the rules for our life. We want to be the governor of our own life. God's okay, but you know who we really love? Ourselves. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that in the last days, people will be lovers of self. This is what sin does. 
It blinds us to the glory of God and makes our frail little glory seem like it's so much more. So that rather than be in love with God, we become in love with self. And this escalates with each generation. If you remember from from the fall in Genesis 3 to the days of the flood, with each succeeding generation as as sin deepened its control of, of the human heart, each generation became more lofty in its own eyes. Until God finally brought judgment through the flood. And God tells us that we can expect the same thing now as we head towards final judgment day. In these last days, people will increasingly, in new and ingenious ways, become lovers of self. They will put self on a pedestal. It's what the self-esteem movement is all about. And because self is our God, self is our passion, self is our obsession, we are consumed in serving self. And so, what do I want right now? Whatever myself wants, that's what I'm going to do. That's what drives me at work, at home. Our problems, our issues, my desires, my needs, that's the focus of my life. I am utterly consumed in my little world of my problems and my issues, and I live for myself. If you tell me that I'm wrong about something, I'm going to find it offensive because you're attacking my God, me. I will say anything and do anything to protect the honor of self. Something happens when we hear the gospel. And I mean when we really hear the gospel. You you know the hearing I'm talking about. You don't just hear it, you get it. The Spirit makes it real. Suddenly your, your, your heart begins to realize for the first time that this thing called self isn't really all you thought it was before. You, you, you begin to see some negative things about self. Indeed, you begin to see just how wicked your own heart really is for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You begin to realize that if you depend on yourself, if you live for the service of self, you will be utterly hopeless when you stand before the true God on the last day. What is becoming a Christian? Except this very thing, turning from trusting in yourself to trusting in Christ. Conversion is when a person turns away from service of self to the service of Christ. We stop giving our full allegiance to ourselves. We place our hope and trust in Christ. Conversion is the first time that we ever truly die to self. In that moment, we begin a lifelong process of dying to self every day until that last day when all sin will be removed from us and we love Christ completely. Self has been dealt a fatal blow if you're a Christian. That moment you first believed by the grace of God, you dealt self a fatal blow. But you and I both know that self still battles within us, doesn't it? It wants to be the controlling influence of our lives. But as we grow in Christ, we begin to see more and more from God's perspective. And as we grow in Christ, our love for Jesus increases and our love for ourselves decreases quickly. God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, 31. 
about the day when He would put His Spirit into people's hearts and change them. And He said that this would happen as a result. Quote, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Ezekiel said this is the mark of someone who has been born again. They no longer love self. They loathe self. And they love Christ. Paul said in Romans 7.18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. In other words, Paul says, anything good that's in me has come because of the Spirit of God. It's the work of Christ in me. Take the Spirit away from me. Take Christ away from me. Just have me in my flesh. I am nothing good. Can you concur with that this morning? About yourself? This is why the world still thinks that Christians are crazy. We teach the death of self-worship. We teach that loving yourself is not a good thing. Indeed, the only way to get to heaven is to fall out of love with self, to die to self, and to live to Christ. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up His cross and follow Me. If you want to follow Christ, you must practice self-denial. You must be willing to take all the desires of self, stick them on a cross, and nail them there. Do you think Paul liked being beaten with rods? you think being stoned to death was fun? The desires of self say, stop preaching the Gospel, Paul. Don't go to that city. Don't put yourself in that circumstance. Maybe you could change the way you preach so it's not so offensive. Maybe you can water down your Gospel and you won't have to have the flesh ripped off your back this time. be a Christian is to take the desires of self and to nail them on a cross and to leave them there and to say, Jesus, wherever you would have me go, whatever you would have me do, I am yours. No matter what the cost. Walter Chantry says that every step of progress in the Christian life brings the Christian back to that dreaded battleground where many a tear has been shed. And many a drop of blood has been spilled. If you are in Christ, this is a familiar scene. There before you is that grisly old enemy called self. This monster cries out daily to be served. He challenges the dominion of Jesus. He opposes your devotion of time and energy and love to your Lord. This is a strange war that we may only win by feeling ourselves the painful blows that we give. Every denial of self will be felt keenly. Every occasion where we are serious about advancing in the Christian life, we must contend with self. Paul says in verse 15, 
that Christ died so that His people might no longer live for themselves. See those words, no longer? Maybe you have a translation that says, henceforth, it indicates a change. A radical shift in priorities. Dear friends, if you call yourself a Christian, have you experienced a radical shift in priorities? Has there been a, this is who I was, but no longer? Henceforth, line drawn in the sand. I used to live for self, now I live utterly to the will of Christ. I am His and He is mine and I love it to be so. I will do whatever He says. God help me. It's the meaning of that phrase, no longer. We are His bride. He is our bridegroom. He is our captain. We are His soldiers. Soldiers don't go do what they they think they ought to do. They, They turn to the captain. Give us our orders, captain. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. He is the head of the body. We are its members. We are His. We belong to Him. We are His servants. We have found that it is better to be a servant of Jesus than to be masters of ourselves. Because we're terrible gods, quite frankly. We stink at being Lord of our lives. And Jesus is the most incredible master anyone could ever have. Perfect in knowledge. Perfect in wisdom. Willing to die for His people. I mean, what what more could we want? Jesus is a good King. A noble King. A King of righteousness and fairness and justice. This King has won our hearts. It is for Him that we live. What a Lord He is. The very Son of God. God Himself. And He has so loved His people that although we were worthy to be hated by Him, we were worthy of being condemned by Him for all eternity, He Himself took our punishment so that we could be His servants and indeed His children forever. Christian, how great is the love of Christ for you? How great it is You do not take one single step in which your shepherd is not with you, protecting you, providing you, gently leading you down the path that leads to heaven. As you live each day, as you face each obstacle and each trial, He grieves with you as you grieve. He rejoices with you as you rejoice. He takes every difficult circumstance and works it for your eternal good. Dear friends, take the greatest love you've ever known on this planet. Maybe the love of a spouse or the love of a mother. It does not come close to the love of Jesus Christ for His people. Are you living in the reality of Christ's love for you? Are you sold out to Him? Is it that which controls your steps? When we see the love of Christ bigger than the oceans, Bigger than the universe. And when we realize that we live in that love, how can we not help but cry out to our Savior, I am yours. And so, 
Jesus, I'm in this circumstance at work. What do I do? Jesus, uh, I'm in this, this relationship issue. What do I do? I'm not going to say, what do I want to do? I'm going to turn to You. I am Yours. I'm living in Your love. I'm a child of God. Heaven is before me. My sins are forgiven. You love me. I don't know why, but You, you love me. And so I'm going to trust You. What would You have me do? That's what it means to be a Christian. You follow Jesus. You look to Jesus. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, here is the banner that ought to fly over all our lives. Not unto us, but unto Him who for our sakes died and was raised again. This is something non-Christians really don't get a lot of times, and sometimes it's hard for us to describe it for them. They look at the Christian life and they think, oh, what drudgery. Why in the world? Would you want to live a Christian life? You got to pray all the time. Be at church on Sundays. Do you know there's football on? Giving 10% of your income to the church. Do you know how much that is? Do you know any other things you can have with that money? Always having to, to be careful that you tell the truth. Visiting sick people. Talking to others about Jesus. To the unbeliever, this kind of life looks like misery, not pure joy. What they don't understand is that living this life of holiness is exactly pure joy when you're living in the love of Christ who died for you. When your eyes have been opened to see just how good Jesus is, and how every command that He gives is a command of love for our benefit, how He knows even better than we do what is best for us. Suddenly this changes everything and what looks like drudgery to the world is delight for Christians. The love of Christ controls us. We have been forgiven much and now we love Him much. So Mount Hermon, the application for us is clear. Our gatherings will be full of joy. My mic fell off. Hold on. As long as our eyes, Mount Hermon, are on the great love of Jesus for us, following Jesus will be easy and a delight. Our gatherings will be full of joy. It will be easier to love one another, easier to bear with one another. Easier to be kind to one another. When you're living in the love of Christ and you know who you are in Christ, you can put up with things so much easier. And you have so much reason in your heart to want to obey Him. If we take our eyes off of Christ and off of Christ's love for us, self will soon seek to regain its foothold. Soon we will not be saying, what would Christ have us do, but what do we want? That's bad to say as an individual. That's really bad to say as a church. Not what would Christ have us do, but what do we want? We will no longer be saying, what is best for the glory of Christ? We will be saying, what's best for me? The sick will go unvisited and uncared for. Sermons will be endured rather than eagerly listened to. 
Giving will, will go down, or, or worse, it won't go down, and people will give out of reluctant duty rather than delightful hearts. You see, if we take our eyes off of the great love of Jesus for us, we will fall again into pride. And pride is the great enemy of the Christian. Pride will tear apart every good thing that God has been doing in this church for so long. And so we must be sober-minded and alert. We must be serious about maintaining hearts full of joy in Jesus. Is your heart rejoicing in the love of Christ? Now? Monday? Tuesday? Is your heart rejoicing in the love of Christ? We must be overwhelmed every day that though every drop of Jesus' blood was worth more than this universe, He chose to shed that blood so that wretched sinners like me would be saved. We can't be the same after that. Mount Hermon, God has been good to us in special ways recently. We've, we've seen growth as a church. We've seen more people attend our gatherings. And many of us are so thankful for, for God's kindness to us in this. And, and we cry out for it all the more. We, we want to be useful in this community. We long to see people thronging into to this room to hear the Gospel preached. But let's be honest. We're God to answer that prayer. And to bring many more people into our midst. That would mean a lot more work for us. More sick people to visit. More people to pray for. More people to get to know. More people to, to have in your homes and to form relationships with. More people's issues to take as your own. If God brings real growth to our church, it will affect our lifestyles and it will cost each and every one of us who takes the Christian life seriously. Are you really willing for that to happen? Are you willing to say to Jesus, whatever would bring most glory to you, bring it on? We want to see more souls saved. We want to see more visitors come. Are we willing to be faithful and obedient to love and care for them if they come? Even if it means denying yourself this, denying yourself that. Is the love of Christ controlling you? Are you more concerned with the things of Christ than the things of this world? Are you willing to sacrifice much for Christ's sake? Is your heart burning with love for Jesus and a desire to wear yourself out in this life for His service? Because you know what's coming. A life of endless rest. A life of eternal joy. Unbelievers, Run to Jesus. Don't keep serving this master called self. You will find that you have wasted your life in rebellion against God. Dear unbelievers, hell will wait for you. And when you die, that will be your place. God will condemn you, not because He is evil, but because He is good and you are evil. It doesn't have to be this way. 
Pull the mask off of your own heart and see it for the crooked, twisted thing that it is. Then run to Jesus and ask Him to save you. Trust Christ. Be baptized in His name. Find a church you can learn from Him. Dear unbeliever, discover what it is to not live for yourself, but to live unto Him who died and was raised. Mount Hermon, may the love of Jesus control us. Let's pray. I'd ask us all now just to take some time and to pray about what we've heard.